Amen, amen. Um, good morning, church. If you have a Bible, go on and open up to 1 John chapter 2. Uh, that's where we, if you have a Bible, remember, as always, if you, if you don't have a Bible uh, that you can bring or just happen to forget one, you can stop by Next Steps on your way in and, and uh, grab one. We have some available there. Um, we'd love to to help you uh, be able to follow along with God's Word. But uh, we're on this journey together through the book of 1 John. Um, but I wanted to remind you, as I've been reminding you each week, uh, it's not a book. First okay? John is first and foremost a letter. It's a letter that was written by a particular man to a particular group of people in a particular time for a particular purpose, right? Um, it's, a, it's a letter first and foremost. Um, so we get the privilege today of reading uh, the letter in our day with God's help and looking for truths and application in our own lives, but we are not the original audience. And so oftentimes that frames and shapes how we read it. So today we're going to be um, in chapter 2. I actually just want to read verses 15 through 17, um, and then I'm going to pray. Um, and uh, so I've been debating on whether to tell you this. I ate a donut after I shared with the group next door, and I need to drink some water too. So it's not only going to be a time of prayer, I'm also going to have to chug some water because this donut, it was good. All right, sorry to bring it up. All right, uh, let me read chapter 2, verses 15 through 17. Then I'll pray, I'll take a drink, and then uh, we'll dive in here, okay? First John 2, the word of the Lord says this, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in them. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride in one's possessions is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world with its lust is passing away, but the one who does the will of God remains forever. Let's pray together. Father God, we, we do come before you again, God, just thanking you for your word. God, we ask that today you would speak to us. And God, that when we leave this place, God, there's been no doubt that we've been in your presence, and we've heard from your word. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Now the water. Oh, there we go. From the beginning of chapter 2, uh, John has started addressing those that he's writing to. Nothing's changed by chapter 2, except something that's changed the way he addresses them, okay? Um, he begins, he, he, he writes to them as little children. That's what he says. Now, I look at that today and I go, dude, that's ridiculously condescending. Like there's no way ever that I would preach a sermon and I would go, now little children, listen to me, right? Like you would get up and walk out. That would be the creepiest thing for me to do. But for John, don't, don't think of it that way because this is an endearing term to John. This is, this is a, probably spoke of the newness of their faith that he's writing to, to the believers, um, in fact, Paul uses similar language in his letter, but oftentimes when Paul uses it, Paul's using it to actually point to the fact that y'all acting like a bunch of babies. Like I'm, we're having to spoon feed you the Bible when you should be studying it yourself. That's, that's Paul's argument. That's not what John is saying here. This, when he says little children, his term is, 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 is one of endearment. It's, it's one of, uh, of positivity. And so he's not using it in a negative way here. But he does, I believe, through the next few verses all the way up through the beginning of chapter 3, I believe, um, and in my mind, I just had little children uh, in my mind. So as I was reading it, I saw three struggles 
um, that are unique to children, that I think are unique uh, to us as believers as well. And so um, in the text, the first thing is this. John tells them, don't be distracted by flashy things. Don't be distracted by flashy things. So one of my earliest opportunities I had to serve God was at a kid's camp that my church uh, had when I was growing up. And uh, I was about 15 years old, and I, uh, 15, 16 maybe, and I played guitar. And I still do, but not quite as good. But uh, but I was 15, and so me and a girl that I went uh, as I was in school with, we would go to this kids' camp. We would lead worship, and I'm talking about like no speakers, no microphones, no plugs, no nothing. We're in a room jam packed with like 50 kids who were all just jumping up and down, screaming like every and every song we did, no matter what we did, it was a hit. You know what I mean? Like they loved it. If we told them to jump up and down while they sang, they would. If we told them to you know, what, like just scream to the Lord. Like they would do, like they were just, they were so in it and we would get done. And I, I mean, I'm 15 years old, so I'm a lot better shape now. I don't get, I didn't get out of breath walking upstairs like I do now, but like I would get done and I would have like sweat. Like I would just be a sweaty, hot mess after I finished leading worship at kids camp. And it was like, I'd be hoarse. Like it was just, it was such a, a thing because it was so much fun and they're, they're loud and and all that. But as God continued to grow me, uh, I got an opportunity to speak at a kid's camp. Now, different environment, right? Um, but here's the thing. Here's what I found. I get just as sweaty teaching a group full of kids as I do leading in worship. And here's why. Because keeping a kid's attention while I talk to them about important things is really, really hard. Because no matter how bad an eight-year-old wants to look me in the eyes and focus, there's a lot going on in the peripheral. Because <laughs> so I'm up there and I'm trying to teach, I'm trying to use my hands and keep them engaged. And I'm trying, I'm coming over here and I'm talking. And then there's a kid on the back who's punching a kid in front of him. There's another kid who's raised, you know, the hand raised kid. He's always got his hand raised. And even when you ask a question, you think he's going to ask, he's like, can I go to the bathroom? You know what I mean? That kid. But you know, if you let him go to the bathroom, who else raises their hand? Everybody raises their hand. So you can't, you got to hold it. And then you get a phone call from a parent. But anyway, um, you didn't let my kid go to the bathroom? So now, all right, I'm off of that, okay? But listen, when I realized, what I realized in that moment as I was teaching, I'm, I'm just as sweaty, I'm just as worn out after I finished. As a young single guy, what I learned is that teaching kids is hard and that you guys who are school teachers deserve a million dollars a year. And if you homeschool your kids, I think you deserve a million and ten. Um, because I don't know how any of you do any of it. Um, but can we all admit kids are easily distracted? We know that. And even if their eyes, again, are fixed firmly, there's so much going on to draw their eyes away. And I think that's John's point here. Yeah, I think that's John's point. John's point is new believers and even those of us who have been Christians a while are much like children and that we can be easily distracted by flashy things that are happening in our peripheral vision. And John says here that the thing that is drawing our focus is the world. That's what he said. Now, John surely doesn't mean the physical world. He's not talking about the material around us. He's not talking about trees and grass and clouds. He's not talking about the physical world. He's not calling us as followers um, to, to not love the world around us. Instead, he's speaking of the world as the forces of evil that wage war against the things of God. So John, 
here is saying there are real forces at work, real things in this world that are distracting Christians from where we should be focused. Verse 15, he says, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in them. You're seeing this. What John is showing us is that to love the things the world has to offer is to put us against God. To love the world stands in opposition to the love for the Father. And so John goes on. He doesn't leave us trying to figure out, okay, <clears throat> what are those things? What does it mean? He actually tells us, here's what, I don't, here's what I don't want you to love. Here's the things, everything in the world. He gives us a few categories. He says the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride in one's possessions. Now, I believe arguably better than any place in Scripture, John gives us some idea of the way in which the world tries to distract us. What are, what, what are the, the uh, um, if I'm going to be a good coach, I want to know the, 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 the techniques of my enemy. And that's what John's giving us here. John's throwing out these three categories or buckets of distractions, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride in one's life. And I don't know if John meant for these to be all-inclusive, all like anything that could distract you in the world, you can drop into one of these three buckets. He doesn't necessarily say that in the text, but from my own personal experience, most of what distracts me from my walk with God fits into one of those three buckets. And you probably, once we talk through them, I think you'll see that too. So I want to show you all three of these and kind of what they mean, what they don't mean. So uh, the first one he says is lust of the flesh. Now this is about cravings and desires, Okay, so desire itself is not a bad word, uh, but when those desires are being driven by our sinfulness and not our spiritualness, it is a problem. That's lust of the flesh. This may be desire for food, for drink, for drugs, for sensual relationships or images on our phone or computer. All of these things fit in here. These are the things that they become addictions in our lives. These are the things that we use to dull the pain or to provide an out for sadness and frustration. These are the things, church. These are the lusts of the flesh. The things we do without even thinking. The things we can't figure out how to give up. These things pull us from God. Here's why. Because we run to them in times of need instead of running to God. A man loses his job on Friday at quitting time. Instead of running to God for wisdom and seeking him, he goes out with a friend to the bar and gets wasted in fear and anger. A woman lacking self-image may run to a Facebook wall to count the likes on her selfie instead of finding her worth in God. A man frustrated in his marriage runs to images <clears throat> on his phone instead of hitting his knees and praying for God to restore and to bring health to his marriage. You see this, church. I say forget COVID-19. This is the pandemic that's destroying our country. The lust of the flesh. These are the things. Every day, Christians like you and me are feeding in. We're buying the lie. We give in to the lust of the flesh instead of coming humbly to the God of all creation. God help us. Lust of the flesh. The second thing John mentions is the lust of the eyes. Similar, but somewhat very different. This is wanting what we see. Lust of the eyes is wanting what we see. Man, our eyes play a huge role in our sinfulness. 
over and over again, uh, the Old Testament Bible authors <clears throat> will say that someone saw and then they took. Right? They saw and then they took. It's used to describe several different situations of men and women throughout the Old Testament that lead to different types of sin. However, they start the same way. Someone saw something and then they took it for themselves. It goes all the way back to Genesis 3. Back in the garden with Eve. If you're not familiar with the story, God creates these first two humans and and he gave them one command, not to eat from a particular tree in the garden. He said, hey, you got, you got access to everything but that one tree. But after conversing with a serpent, if you're not familiar with the story, <clears throat> just go read it, okay? I know it sounds crazy. Um, but after conversing with a serpent who convinced her that God didn't have her best interest at heart, we see this. The woman saw that the tree was good for food and delightful to look at, and that it was desirable for obtaining wisdom. So she took some of its fruit and ate it, and also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Do you see this? She what? She saw, and then she took. Now, some scholars will even argue that all three of the categories, lust of the flesh, uh, or that all three of these categories are actually present here, that, that John's referencing back to this moment to say the lust of the flesh was saying that it was good for food, that the lust of the eyes was that it was delightful to look at, and that she had this pride um, in, in obtaining wisdom rivaling to that of God. But whether John was making connection back to that or not, I, I don't feel confident enough to say, but it's really interesting uh, to study. But to, to, to say, uh, but here we see that the see and take idea continues throughout the biblical story. And, and I'm and I'm, I'm a witness. If nobody else in the room wants to testify, I'm a witness today that it still continues. We see things with our eyes. And then we want to take those things for ourselves. Sadly, jealousy reigns in the heart of so many of us. We desire what others have. We see jobs that we wish were ours. We see money that we wish was ours. We see relationships we wish we had. We see lifestyles, homes, cars, smiles, body types, reputation, influence. We see all of these things in others and we desire it for ourselves. And many times over, this lust that began in our eyes then draws our eyes off of the faith and relationship with Jesus that we need. I hope I mean, I hope not, but more than likely, you can see this in your life today. See that in the lives of those around you. This is prevalent, scary prevalent in believers today. The third thing John says is pride and possessions. Pride and possessions. Now, traditionally, if you grew up memorizing this from the King James, it probably said the pride of life, maybe what you're more familiar with. But translators today believe the Greek word used for life there is best translated as the things that support life or the things that uh, that are there in our lives. And so, it, you know, the, the version I use and many more modern translations shorten it to possessions. But, and oftentimes when we think about pride, like we think of pride as a good thing, right? Like a uh, pride in my family. I'm proud to be Joe and Darlene Haney's son. They're nuts, but they're my kind of nuts. Right? Like I'm proud. I'm proud to be Elsa Joe and Dan's dad. I'm proud to be your pastor. Like we think of, we think of these things, but just no, that's not what it was talking about. Surely you, 
You can draw that conclusion. You can be proud of your home, your car, your stuff, and not be guilty of this as a distraction. Remember, so we're talking about a, a, thing, a flashy thing that's distracting us. Mo, John is most definitely referring to a possession that we are absolutely enthralled with, something we talk about all the time, something we brag about to our friends, something that you're thinking about even now and you can't stop it. That's what John's talking about. It's going to draw our eye, obviously, away. So as we look back at those three things, lust of the, lust of the, uh, was it lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the pride and possessions, when we look back at those, man, like I get frustrated when I talk to kids and, and, and I talk to my own kids that they're, they're, not, they're getting so distracted when I'm trying to share with them important things, right? This past week, uh, I was talking to Daniel. Um, he had uh, gotten physical on a playground. I'll just say that. Uh, and so that happened, and so I was talking to him about it, right? And uh, and he was in. Of course, he was feeling a little bit of shame and guilt because he knew he had messed up. But the more I went, the more I was trying to teach him about what it means to to view people right. Like, I'm not just trying to get on to him. Like, I want him to understand that this isn't wrong because you hurt somebody. This is wrong because she was created in the image of God as well, and we got to begin to view things differently now, right? And so as I'm talking to him, of course... I get about two-thirds into that, and what did his eyes start doing? <laughs> he thinks if he keeps his head straight, I can't tell. But they're over here, and he's looking, what can I, where's, uh, you know. Um, but this, this is, and as frustrated as I can get with my own kids, or if I'm teaching our kids here at church, I can get frustrated. Man, y'all get so distracted by every little thing, but then I look at my own life, and I look at these three things, right? The lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh. And the pride and possessions. And I go, man, Heath, you're no better. You know, yeah, you, so you can keep your attention when someone's talking to you, but, but you get just as distracted. I still get distracted by flashy things. And, and arguably, they're in, it's worse because these are spiritual things. And I believe John is screaming to me and he's screaming to all of us from this 2,000-year-old letter, stop getting distracted by these things. Stop. So John, as he's talked about the flashy things, then he begins to, to, to change his focus just a little bit. But still, I think, you know, something that really ties into kids well. And this is what he says next is, don't be so gullible. Don't be so gullible. I mean, kids, can be con- kids of a certain age can be convinced of anything, right? If I'm riding with Cam down the road, Cam's driving, and, I, and we're driving on the interstate, and I go, Cam. You're not going to believe it, dude. A kangaroo just jumped by our car. That's absurd. Right? Cam is, I don't know, Cam, you going to believe that? No, Cam's not going to believe that because Cam is an adult with a fully functioning brain. But however, if I said that to my kids, maybe now, but definitely several years ago, <laughs> they would go, did he have a baby in his pouch? Because I think they do. They carry, they carry them in their pouch in the front. That was their baby. Like, that's what would have happened, right? Because kids can be gullible. Right? Even toward ideas and, and lies that sound crazy to us as adult children because of their, they're full of wonder and their innocence, they can be led astray very, very easily. John says that we as followers, especially those who are new or less mature believers, haven't been walking with the Lord a while, are susceptible to the same thing. We can be spiritually gullible and be led astray. And again, we're doing a three thing today, so 
uh, three things that John says in the text. I didn't come up with the three, but he says this is three ways to avoid our gullibleness right from the text. The first thing he says is identify the Antichrist. Now, before you go all left behind and you start having dreams of Kirk Cameron here, okay, um, I'm not we're, not, we're not talking about that, okay? John has a little bit of a different idea in mind for what Antichrist means, uh, a little different than we may see or hear it in other places. Um, but check this out with me, 1 John 2, 18 and 19. Children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come. By this we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they did not belong to us. For if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us. However, they went out so that it might be made clear that none of them belongs to us. So yes, when we get to the book of Revelation, the last book of the Bible, there is great talk about an Antichrist that will come into the world as part of the end times. And hopefully one day the Lord will give me clarity enough that we can study that together, but we're still praying through that. And so, But here, John is not talking about a particular Antichrist, right? Because he actually says there are a bunch of them. And in verse 22, John actually defines what these Antichrists look like. Look at verse 22. It's the second part of it. He says, this one is the Antichrist, the one who denies the Father and the Son. So John says the Antichrist, is, he's, he's preaching about, uh, he, he's, he's talking about are the false teachers that are running around preaching things contrary to Christ and the Father. John says that these people are out there. They were out there 2,000 years ago, and I believe they're out there now teaching falsely. And the way you can know them, John says, is that they deny the Father and the Son in their teaching. And so it's good practice for those of us here to, that before you dive headlong, I know somebody at work told you that there's a, there's a preacher, man, he's so good. He's over in Georgia. You got to listen to his sermons. Get online. Here's the website. Just search before you listen. <laughs> Go to the church's website and maybe peruse the... Uh, the uh, basics of their faith, right? Look at their doctrine. Before you get involved with a, a Christian organization, look at their website. Look what their basic beliefs are. Before you go buy every book written by a particular author, just take a minute to study and to make sure what that person is teaching. It's why right now Kenny is trying to go through every doctrine that we believe as a church in 20 minutes. Because in East 101, we want you to know the basics of what we believe so that you're not caught off guard when I say something crazy, you know? Or you're not caught off guard that, uh, that, that, that we're the same, right? So we don't discuss these things in depth over there, but we want to leave an opportunity for people to ask questions about any of the doctrines. So it's, it's good practice to, to check out the core beliefs of those that we're going to listen to and not allow voices in to our mind and our heart without checking into them. But John says there, he gives more advice here. He says, not only do you need to, to, what was the word I used? Identify the Antichrist. You need to listen to the anointing. You need to listen to the anointing. We'll explain what that means as we go through. So John mentions here, not, not even directly. Uh, he doesn't give us the fullness of this. But John mentions here one of the wildest things that we believe as Christians. And if you've been a Christian uh, for a while, you've been around the church, you don't even... You don't even grasp the craziness of this. But if you're new to the church, it's your first time ever to step in foot, foot in a church, I'm about to say something crazy. But it's what we believe. God lives in me. 
the God that was large enough to speak creation into existence, the God who can't be contained even to a temple, he lives in me. I know it's nuts. But this is actually what the Bible teaches us and what I've experienced in my own life, that when I trusted in Jesus Christ as my Savior, God placed part of himself in me and inside of every person here. The very Spirit of God is now unified with who I am and lives in me and through me. 1 John 2.20 says this, But you have an anointing from the Holy One. And all of you know the truth. There seems to be this connection between uh, the anointing, an anointing from the Holy One and knowing the truth. And so we've received this anointing, similar language uh, to what is used elsewhere to speak of God's Spirit. But John doesn't necessarily make that connection for us. But he does say in verse 26, I have written these things to you concerning those who are trying to deceive you. Now, those who are, who are trying to prey on your gullibleness. As for you, the anointing you received from him remains in you. The anointing, the spirit of God you receive from him remains in you and you don't need anyone to teach you. Instead, his anointing teaches you about all things and is true and is not a lie. Just as it has taught you, remain in him. The spirit of God is in us and serves as a teacher to those of us who are in Christ. And what's crazy is, okay, so you're like, Heath, how do you know it's the Holy Spirit? How do you know that's what he's talking about? Well, this same guy that wrote 1 John also tells us about the life of Jesus Christ in what we call the gospel according to John. And in John 14, 26, the same guy who just wrote about the anointing said this, that said, quoted Jesus' words here, but the counselor, the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name will teach you all things and remind you of everything I've told you. So you're seeing the similar theme here. If you and I are going to be, if you and I are not going to be spiritually gullible and therefore susceptible to being led astray, we have got to acknowledge and listen to God's Spirit at work in us. And what does that mean? It means that as we pray, as we read God's Word, and as we engage with other believers, we need to remember that God has placed his spirit in us to help us and to teach us. The third thing he says to protect against gullibility is this. Remember what you know. Remember what you know. Now, I'll tell you, as a kid, I would have thought that was a dumb statement. Remember what you know. Um, when my brain was much younger and sharper and only had a few years of life experience under my belt, uh, memory was so easy, wasn't it? Y'all remember when memory was easy? Adults in the room. Um, but the older I get, the more I forget how to balance equations in algebra. The more I forget names of generals on both sides of the Civil War. The symbols for the noble gases on the periodic table. Names of faces, names and faces of people I went to school with for 13 years. <laughs> the older I get, right? And also where I put my keys before I went to bed last night, which was in my wife's van this morning. No idea why. Don't remember. Anyway, 
But can we all admit there is an active part? There is an active part in remembering. Right? Just because we know it doesn't mean it's going to stay there. And so John says that, is, that this is a big part of fending off spiritual gullibility. Look at what he says in verses 24 and 25. What you have heard from the beginning. Now, this is the, we're about to see the second and the third time that John says from the beginning. And what we talked about like week one was that this was not a reference like to the beginning of Genesis 1, but this was a beginning of their faith, it seems, from John. And so he says, what you have heard from the beginning of your faith is to remain in you. What you have heard is to remain in you. If what you have heard from the beginning remains in you, then you will remain in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he made, that he himself made to us, eternal life. You see, John is saying, we taught you what Jesus told us to tell you. We taught you the things you needed to know. And yes, he doesn't address it here, but yes, there's a need to keep learning for sure. But he says, let what you heard from the beginning remain in you. To put in words that I've said, remember what you already know. The best way to remember something you already know is to review it and to think on it. I started here in January 2020 as your pastor. Some of you, like a lot of you weren't even here yet, which is fun. Um, but I started here just, just a little over three years ago and I got to preach nine times. And then there was this this thing that happened in the world. I don't know if you'd ever heard of it, but COVID-19 virus, um, it kind of was a big deal. And so all three campuses uh, trying to figure out what to do, we ended up shutting down for 13 weeks in light of this virus. Now, whether that was the right thing to do, it's in the past, it's done, whatever. But I remember now, I got to preach nine times. I had nine times to try to grasp faces and names And then I went 13 weeks without seeing most of you. Now, what I I knew was I've got to figure out a way to remember the names and faces that I have now, right? And so I printed the best list I could, which was not good because we didn't keep good records before I got here. We're fixing that too. But I printed the best list of names I could and I reviewed those names, because when you're a pastor and nobody really wants you to probably come and see them, um, which because we're all trying to figure out what's going on, you're sitting in your office a lot. So I had that list, and I would just review that list, trying to remember everyone I had met, so that whenever we got back together, we could pick right up, and I wouldn't have to go, "Hey, buddy," you know what I mean? That's Steve. I know Steve's name. And I needed to review that. I needed to remind myself of who he was and his and his wife Cheryl. Like, I needed to remember that so that whenever we got back together, whenever that was going to be, that I, could, I had to work to remember the names and the faces. And listen, if you want to stand strong in your faith, even in, even in spite of hearing false teaching, you've got to remind yourself of what you already know. Yes, it's in there. But it, this is going to happen. This reminding of yourself is going to happen through reading God's word for yourself and seeing how it all fits together. Reminding yourself of uh, each story that you're reading, where it fits in the overall story of God. And, and that's going to draw your attention to other things you know as you ask yourself hard questions as you sit down with God's word. 
It happens, uh, this reminding happens when you have theologically biblical conversations with other believers, whether at work or in your home or in your small group here at church. But these conversations are going to help you remember what you know. So important. If you think, man, I've, 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 studied, I've studied a lot about the Bible. I know it. If you're not going back and reminding yourself of those things, then it's gone. That's how our brains work, I think. All right? I'm not a... Whatever. All right. So John says those two things. Don't be distracted by flashy things. And little children, don't be so gullible. And the advice that John seems to give here to these children in the faith, these little children in the faith, said, don't do these two things. Instead, grow up to look like Jesus. That's point number three. And so there's a whole lot in these verses that we're going to look at, but I just want to take a peek because, again, what, we're, what I'm seeing is that this is, a, this is in contrast to what's been said. So there's a lot more we could go into here. We're not going to do a crazy deep study. John begins to use born-again language here in 1 John. And if you're an avid reader of the Bible, then you know that this is not the first time that John has written about being born again. Um, in fact, it's in John's gospel again that, that tells the story of a night in which Jesus was called to meet with this Jewish religious leader who would have been, who everything in his life would have been removed from him had they known he was talking to this Messiah. So he met with him at night in the darkness. And Jesus meets with this man named Nicodemus. And uh, Jesus explains to Nicodemus that, man, I know what you've been taught. I know the way you guys are think what you think God's word says, but I'm here to tell you, you cannot enter the kingdom of God unless you've been born again. Now, for a guy in his 40s and 50s, however old he was, that sounds nuts. That sounds crazy, right? Well, uh, I got questions, and I think I need to talk to a doctor. Like, I don't know what this is going to look like. This is, of course, confused him, but Jesus explained that everything I'm saying to you, everything I'm saying, this is a spiritual birth. And so John says the same thing here in 1 John 2, 29. He says, if you know that he is, if you know that he is righteous, talking about Christ, you know this as well. Everyone who does what is right has been born of him. See what great love the Father has given to us that we should be called God's children, and we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it didn't know him. You see, so many people want to think of themselves as God's children because God created them. But listen to me when I say this. You, if you are God's child, it is because you've been reborn, not born. It's because at some point in your life, Christ, uh, the, the blood of Christ was, was, uh, was brought redemption to you and God for, for, we, had, we baptized a little girl this morning. She's, she's a young girl, but as I told the first service, at some point, at some point in Hadley's life, her parents can't even point to the exact moment that it probably happened, but God reached his big spiritual hand into her life, smacked her heart, and made it new. I don't know if that's exactly how it happens, but he brought new life to Hadley. And that is what it means to be a child of of God, to be born again. And this is what, so if, if, you, if you, you've been reborn in a spiritual way, 
and what we're talking about, then, then you are God's child. And that's, John, John says that everything changes for us because of that. Verse 2, dear friends, we are God's children now. But listen to this, what we will be has not yet been revealed. We know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him as he is. And everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. Hang with me through this. So John says, we are God's children. And he speaks at this time of, he says, when he appears. That's a reference to a point in the future in which the Bible says that Christ will return to the earth and reclaim his creation and finally put an end to all evil and injustice in the world. And that that day is coming. And John says, I don't know when that happens. I don't know what we're going to be. He says that. I don't know what we will be. But we will be like him. What does that mean? He says, Jesus is coming back, and I don't know what he's going to look like. I don't know exactly how it's going to be. I don't know exactly what kind of form he's coming back in, but I know we get to join him. We get to be like him. We will finally share in Christ's perfect love for God and man. We will be with him and we'll be like him. And John says, until then, purify yourself. And this is the part we miss. This is the part we miss. Because John is saying, don't wait. Because boy, if that don't hit home with our Christian culture in America, how many people are walking around today having experienced the regenerative work of the Spirit in their heart, having tasted of the mercy and grace and love of God, and yet living just like everybody else in the world. Waiting for the day in which God is going to, either their death or some future day in which Christ is going to come. And, and then he's going to make me like Jesus. And, but, they're, but they're not doing anything about it here. And what John is saying is, dude, you're wasting time. You're wasting time because, yes, there is a moment in which Christ is going to come back. And in a moment we will be like him. Hey, but until then, look like him. That's what he says. Purify yourself. What does that mean? To, to take off the things that are bad and put on the good things. To become pure like Jesus is. The, the Bible uses the term sanctification. This is a, the lifelong process of looking like Jesus. And what's what John is saying. John says, quit waiting around for Jesus to make you like him. Take the active role in your walk with God right now and begin to strive to learn, to grow, and to mature in Christ. You can look like him, not perfectly, but you can look like him this side of heaven, this side of eternity. You can do that. Do it. (laughs) That's his point. And I think there's so many Christians that are just walking around waiting on some future day in which... I don't know, man. I know they're probably going to a church building on Sunday and they're praying before their food at Thanksgiving dinner, but that's about it. They're wasting time. As we grow, as we pursue God, as we, we will look more like Jesus, and as we grow, we will certainly be less and less susceptible, susceptible to the draw of the world towards flashy things and be less spiritually gullible. And this whole thing, this, this whole idea that John's laying out here begins with that born-again piece. That born-again piece. Sanctification starts with a moment of salvation. It starts with being born again through the work of God in you. So before you can begin to look like Jesus, 
You've got to commit your life to following him and, and, and be born again. Today, if you've not done that, I would love to walk you through that. Just as we did young Hadley, who sat right here on the front row. Just as we did, just as we walked through with Hadley about what it looks like. Just as we're walking through with three other children right now. What it looks like to follow Jesus. God's not in the business of just saving kids. He wants to save adults. He wants to save senior adults. He wants to save middle adults and everybody in between. It's what God is about. And so today, if you, I'd love to show you about what that looks like, what it looks like to turn from your sin and place your faith in Jesus Christ. I would love the opportunity to show you that process. And so I'm going to be at the back. We're going to sing one more song. I'm going to be at the back. If you need to come talk to me about salvation, we would love to have that conversation with you. But here's the deal. Most, a lot of us in the room are probably already Christians. And so Heath, if that's all you got to offer, cool. I'm, I'm good. Let's go back to what we just talked about, Okay. If you and I are willing, are you willing to admit, as your pastor is who stands before you, been a Christian for 29 years, been walking with the Lord, yet I still get distracted by flashy things. I still get distracted by the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of my possessions. Those things are not off the table for me just because I'm a pastor. No matter how focused I stay on Jesus, they're all around. They're in my peripheral, and they're trying to distract me. I know I can't be alone in that. So I want to ask you, what are these things that are distracting you? What are these cravings and desires that are out of whack? And if there is something that's on that table, deal with it. Like that's, that's what this time is for. That's why we sing this last song. It's to give you an opportunity to begin to ask those questions. And the other thing is, man, are you being led astray by some teaching in your life? Is there, is there, is there a podcast you're listening to? Is there, some, is there somebody in your work, somebody in your family, somebody who's speaking into your life that ought not be <laughs> because of what we just talked about, that they're, they're actually could be considered an antichrist, according to John, because they're teaching things contrary to God's word? I'm not saying kill them. I'm not saying uh, don't ever speak to them again, but you need to control the input that you allow from them. Take this time to ask God to help you have those difficult conversations. And the last thing we talked about was grow up in your walk with Christ. And I know I'm speaking to people that have been Christians for less than a year and people that have been Christians for 50. It doesn't change. You and I get to partake in our spiritual growth and we know what it looks like and we need to take those steps. So we would love to, as a church, help you take those next steps in your walk with God. I'm going to pray. And we'll open the, you know, the altar is always open for you to come up and pray. The only thing that's different about you praying right where you are and praying up here is that other people pray for you when you come up here and kneel down. Um, But you can also pray right where you are. I'm going to stand at the back. If you need to talk to me about anything that's going on, please, please do. Uh, But you can also stand and sing. So I'm going to pray. And after I pray, we'll stand. Father God, we thank you. Um, God, that, uh, that you choose in your awesomeness to be gracious absolute goofballs like me. And God, that even even with all the responsibility of being a pastor, being a dad, being a husband, being a a believer, God, even with all that responsibility, still get distracted sometimes in your grace. God, no matter how many times I get distracted, what I find is that your grace is always infinitely greater. And God, that you stand ready to help me deal with these distractions in my life. And so God, I pray for everybody in here um, God, that if they got, they've got these things, these flashy things that are distracting them, God, that they wouldn't leave this place without dealing with it. 
So God, in your spirit now, the spirit that's within the believers in the room, God, that you would stir and bring attention to these things. God, before we think about lunch, before we think about our week, before we think about work, before we think about any of that, we'd deal with this junk. God, we thank you for the opportunity to wrestle with these things. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Guys, let's stand and sing. Respond to everything.